More efficient energy production, balanced inflammation, better overall health. Those are three things everyone can get on board with. But as we age, the cellular processes that run like a well-oiled machine in our youth begin to wear down. Fact is, everything we do from working out to breathing in our sleep creates stress and produces free radicals, a byproduct of reactions in the body that produce oxidative stress. Over time, this stress eats away at the integrity of our cells, causing damage that manifests as aging and other complications. That's bad news, but it doesn't necessarily have to play out that way. By protecting the cells, and more importantly, the mitochondria, the body itself may delay the effects of an aging cell. Bottom line, to live a wellness-focused life and to achieve optimal health, performance, and energy levels, you have to make cellular integrity priority number one. That's where total mitochondria comes in. Total mitochondria has been shown to help boost cellular integrity, promote cardiovascular health, and balance normal inflammation responses. Mitochondria, affectionately known as the powerhouse of the cells, are responsible for generating ATP, which runs the rest of the body. Think of mitochondria like turbines. They produce energy that every cell in our bodies needs to function, and therefore are critical for brain, muscle, and heart health. When our cells are healthy, the mitochondria inside them function optimally. Total mitochondria is the answer. If you want more, go to onit.com slash total dash mitochondria. And as always, if you want 10% off this amazing product and more, go to onit.com slash podcast. We got the legend of Paul Check returning. And I think this is volume three. I'm going to keep podcasting with Paul until I'm done podcasting or until he dies or until one of us dies because there's just so much knowledge and wisdom to extract from this guy. We did this podcast at his heaven house in San Diego, California. I was sitting in his living library. And I say that because there's more books in that library and good books. There's not a single book I've seen in there where I wasn't like, oh, tell me about this one. All of them amazing. The complete works of Carl Jung, the complete works of Rudolf Steiner, all these amazing teachers who has shaped Paul into the man that he has become a very wise elder. And we dive into some of his teachers. We dive into Rudolf Steiner. We dive into child rearing. We dive into childhood development, all very important things. And we dive into a lot of other cool things as well. I know you guys are going to dig this one. Thanks for tuning in. The return of Paul Check. Yeah, baby. Part fucking three. I love it. Thank you. Out of an infinite number, hopefully. Let's Obviously, do it. it's not going to be infinite in this plane. We'll continue the conversation as we leave these bodies behind. Everything's but, infinite. <laughs> fuck yeah. It's um I've been so excited. You know, Aubrey and I went down to LA. We were doing a lot of podcasts there. Aubrey spoke at the Metabolic Health Summit, which is a really cool thing Dr. Dominic D'Agostino puts together. But this has been the one piece of the trip I've been looking forward to the most. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoy it, and I'm excited to be able to share it with you. Yeah, brother. And you have your podcast now, Living yes. in 4D. Yes, I love Finally, it. Finally, blessing Living... the world with your wisdom. Yeah, well, you know, also the wisdom of a lot of other people. You know, I, as you know, podcasting, I, I try to draw the wisdom out of other people. It's hard, actually. I'm having to learn because there's so often that I want to say, well, you know, there's more to it than that, or mm -hmm. what about this? So I kind of have to be careful not to take it over, you know, because yeah. I'm so used to being a, in the leader position and, you know, the, the alpha male is quite deep in me, just like it is in you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think having a guest that welcomes that too. Like yeah. I know when we have our conversation, we'll we'll link to it in the show notes here, depending on when they come out together. But um, 
I welcome that. And I look at you as my teacher. So I welcome that type of interplay back and forth because I'm very much going to learn from you as we speak, as that always happens, right? Thank you. So I think there's a certain level of receptivity and it's exciting when you have that. It's exciting to have somebody that's like, oh, you listen when I speak, you know, there's a difference there, right? Yeah. You're not just talking at one another. So in, in the context of that listening, every great teacher, all the wise, listen very well. Yeah. And we're in a living library that we is are. just fucking like nothing I've ever seen before. It never is dull. Every time I come here and I look around, it's um, it just blows me away. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you today is going to be about the wisdom of these great teachers. And we'll dive, we can bounce around. I don't necessarily have a a plan. There's a few I want to dive into in particular. Uh, but first, none other than Rudolf Steiner. Yes. You have a you're another child on the way. Yes. And she is uh, in her second pregnancy right now. Yeah. And congratulations. Thank you. It's, you're 57 it's, now. 57, yeah. And the boys can still swim. There's no <laughs> doubt. They swim strong. <laughs> they're they're uh, Olympic masters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things you realize when you have a child, myself included, is that I fucking hated school. I hated school. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's there's a lot that's missing in today's schools. And, yeah. you know, you were one of the first people that turned me on to Waldorf and the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. So I wanted to take a deeper dive into that. My wife and I, Tosh, we got to go through, do a, do a walk through at Waldorf yeah. that was two and a half hours long. And we were blown the fuck away. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought... I even told the lady, she's like, do you have any questions? And I was like, do you take like adults that could go? I would go back to kindergarten through 12th grade again to be able to go through a Waldorf. Well, you will like with Billy, your kid. Like Billy Madison, you know? Yeah, you'll be right in the thick of it with your kid. That's exactly what she told me. Yeah. And, she goes, you and, will you know, get the, to experience it. Angie, the, in the beginning, the mothers go with them for the first, I think, you know, Mon is in there now and he just graduated to where he, he can go by himself for, I think, two or three hours or even a half a day. But Angie goes with him each uh, visit. So there's a lot of um, interaction and, and the parents are making crafts and doing the things that the kids are doing. The kids are separated, like they're at another table to to teach them some independence and to interact with each other. But the point being is you definitely do go on the ride with them. It's pretty hard not to be. And if you're not on the ride with them, it actually serves as a blocking factor because it's almost as though there's an idea or a concept conflict. Yeah. They had a couple key concepts for me. One Penny just taught us was that it, it is okay for your child to sleep in the same yes, bed. Yes, and that's actually so. very good for bonding. We read a book uh, by Dr. Gaber Mate uh-huh. and another one of his colleagues, uh, read by his son, Daniel on audible, if you get an audible and it's called hold on to your kids. And it yeah. talks about attachment yes. and how children, if they don't have attachment to their parents in an appropriate way, not obviously there's over attachment and shit like that, but yeah. if they don't have attachment and see you as the leader and someone to look up to, mm-hmm. they'll find that somewhere else. Yeah. They'll find it in a gang. They'll find it in TV. They'll mm-hmm. find it in a friend. They'll find it in drugs. They'll find it in the wrong places. Well, that's because it's archetypal. The the father and the mother archetypes are the 
uh, first two archetypes that are active in us when we're born. The mother is first because she's creating the baby's body, but the father's DNA is in there, and the DNA is a cosmic antenna system, which includes non-local archetypal information, and, and the archetypes are the grand ideas that are behind the cosmic play that we're all living out, and the archetypes are inherently expressed through myth and mythology, which we're all living out, whether we're conscious or unconscious of it or not. And if you're unconscious of the myth you're living out, well, you're going to find yourself in doctor's offices and psychologists and jails and broken relationships and all that stuff. And Steiner was very, very uh, knowledgeable of archetypes and myths and everything related to childhood development and much more. Yeah, 118 different books. I right? have 170 books uh, by Steiner. Now, the thing, Steiner only wrote, I think, five or six books himself. But what the books are is they're transcriptions of the lectures he gave to mm -hmm. his students as he traveled around the world. And so they took uh, topics. So a key lecture might have been on a given topic. And they grouped the lectures based on topics so that the books are like a series of almost like essays, but they're actually transcribed uh, lectures that he gave. I want to dive into a lot of those topics, especially regarding children. One of the things that uh, the other thing that they said, other than children sleeping with, uh, you know, the parents being a good thing, co-sleeping, is they should not have fucking screen time. There yeah. shouldn't be iPad. There shouldn't be TV time for kids. You yeah. know, the occasional movie is not going to hurt them, but no. so many kids are handed an iPad as a way to pacify the kid because mom and dad want a fucking break. Yeah. They're, they're, we're not living multi-generational homes anymore, so we don't have grandparents that can take the kids for a little bit while the parents go out and play or fuck or dance. And most parents are too exhausted to parent. That's one of the problems we're de dealing with. Um, I mean, look how many women are getting C-sections because they don't want to do the work of a vaginal birth or they don't want their vagina stretched out and all these other kind of um, fashion-driven, you know, shallow excuses. But without going into that whole story, it's just an example of the fact that we've now got a culture of parents that are completely and utterly unprepared for, unaware of, and detached from the very deep, profound, and spiritual responsibility of what it means to be a parent. And it is probably the most important function in the world. If How you're parented determines the rest of your life, period. Hmm. Yeah. There was a, I'm sure, I'm positive you have this book. I think it's Neil Gabron. Fuck, I forget the name of the book, but uh, it's a it's a series of poems, and he says that uh, parents are the bow of which you would aim, and they shoot the arrow. Yeah, and wherever that aim is, that sends the arrow into the future. So they are the future. Well, but it's our arc. It's it's how we shoot that bow. The bow that determines is, where they go. That's in the Cupid's bow. Mm. That's the love of arrows. That's what triggers the whole process is the energy of Eros. You know, the, the I break love down into two energies. There's different books with different philosophies, but I've basically synthesized it to Eros is the masculine expression of love. 
And agape is the feminine expression or the yin. So eros is yang and, and agape is yin. So like your love of being good at what you do, your love of uh, winning, uh, your love of doing a good job, your love of um, earning an income to support your family. Th- those are all things you do outside and bring to the home. But when you walk in the door of the house, then you enter the field of the nest, which is the woman's domain. And she works to keep the nest together. You know, the the way I classify it is that the mother nurtures and raises the kids and it's the father's job to educate them and kick them out into the world so they don't, you know, get stuck on the hind tits, so to speak. <laughs> So, you know, these two polarities of nurturing and creating a safe environment that's oriented towards raising the child with consciousness of the stages of the growth and development of the child's mind and body and what what it takes to create an integrated, healthy child, those are very, very oriented toward agape. But things like going out and kicking a soccer ball or pretending to be a warrior or, um, you know, doing things. There's the eros. So that that's classic yin and yang, but you can find this in Greek philosophy. You can find it in native philosophies all over. Sometimes the words are different. But one of the problems is now is that parents are so busy working that there's no agape. It's all eros, eros, eros. Go, go, go. Mm. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Do, do, do. And the kid's end up being raised by Game Boys and um, iPads and cell phones. And, you know, those things are are very, without getting into a bunch of the, you know, what they're doing with those things, but they are very, very dangerous technologies if they're not carefully monitored. And they expose children to things that a child's mind really isn't ideal for. In fact, we recently, when we went through the interview to get Mon into Steiner school, they were quite insistent that he have no screen time. And, and Angie yeah. stood up and said, look, I, I understand what you're saying, but we have him engaging with the iPad only at a limited amount, but we feel that a child has to be in touch with the technological environment that they're growing into. There was none of this around when Steiner was here. And there are also misconceptions in the Steiner camp about some of the things that he believed, um, which happens, you know, look how screwed up Christianity is, and you've got 33,000 derivations of what Jesus wanted. And it takes someone like me who studied Steiner for 25 years uh, to straighten some of these things out. And I've had people take my lectures all over the world. I've even had Steiner teachers take my classes, but I've had people that have been in Steiner school studying to be a Steiner teacher say, I learned more about Steiner's teachings in the last two hours than I did in two years in my teacher training. Mm. Uh, The point is, is that I studied a lot of it. I used to be a member of multiple Steiner libraries and and that's something you want to consider because when you're a member of the Steiner library, this is a while back, so I used to get audio cassettes and they have professional readers that read the many, many books of Steiner's that I talked about. And so I would listening to them in my, in the gym as I was working out and, and just whenever I could. So I got through a lot of Steiner's material that way. And um, 
but the point that I was making there is, is we said, look, we are very tuned to our child. We don't let him watch anything violent. We think that it's important for him to have enough that he develops an awareness of the environment that he's going into, or he'll end up hitting another challenge later on, you know, kind of like someone who today who doesn't know how to use a computer or a cell phone's what are you going to do for a living? Weed, weed someone's garden, maybe. Churn butter for the Amish community. Yeah, or, or you know, work <laughs> on a garbage truck. Like wood, wooden uh, benches. But they, because they do a bit of an analysis on the child and they, they monitor his behavior because to get to the point where you have to go through the interview so you can leave the child alone with the teachers, they're monitoring him a lot and recording. Yeah. And they said that he wasn't showing any signs of, you know, problems. But the point I'm leading to is that in, in the last maybe two or three months, we've noticed that he was getting more physical and and he would uh, get upset and throw cars and sometimes hit mommy or hit daddy and, and get more aggressive than we thought was ideal. And so I started paying close attention to some of the games. And what I found is that not games, but little educational videos like Thomas the Train and and stuff that generally is good, but I started watching just to see what's going on. Where's he picking this up? And I noticed there's quite a bit of stuff, what I would call low-level violence, hidden in even some of these education programs that at first glance you wouldn't realize is there. So we made a family decision to cut back drastically, and he wasn't overdoing it. I mean, he spends lots of time outside. He has a lot of time with painting and books and toys and building things and train sets and stuff where he's very, very engaged. And we we thought, you know, he would kick back because he really does love the iPad. When he gets it, he's like, oh man, it's like candy for him. But he cut back with no struggle whatsoever. We just hmm. spent more time with him in person. That's the secret is connecting with him as opposed to just setting him down and saying, okay, you can play now and leaving him alone, which he can do, but if you engage him, then he doesn't think about the iPad or or watching things. Yeah, so much of that gets lost because we think, I want, you know, fuck. I mean, it's a lot of work it being is. a parent. Yeah. So you're thinking in your mind, especially if you see other kids that are a little bit more independent, you're like, well, why can't my fucking kid do that? Yeah. I want my kid to go play in his room for an hour. Just give me an hour, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, the kid doesn't want to play in the room for an hour. So let me give him the iPad instead. Right. Whereas if you actually engage and you're not on your fucking phone yeah. and you're playing with your kid and the key is playing, yes, whatever that is. It is playing, yeah. Whatever that play is. Yeah. It's fucking fun. It is. Then you are being mom or dad, right? And then yeah. that time goes by and they're gaining so much from that. But that that is, I guess, where, where that book was going, uh, Hold On To Your Kids, is you want that level of attachment. You want them to be engaged with you. You want them to want to play with you because there will be a time where that's not the case. Yeah. But the longer that lasts, the better it is for their development. Well, one of the things that Angie picked up, because Angie studies the, the Steiner teachings and many other things a lot. She's a very, very committed mother. And so she invests a lot of time and energy to study the best teachers and master the process because this is very important to us. Um, one of the things she found in her meetings with Steiner teachers and reading some of their resources is they actually said that adults don't play well with kids because they don't know how to play. 
So what happens is oftentimes when adults start playing with kids, they start directing it and focusing on outcomes like, oh, why'd you screw that up? Or why'd you knock that down? Like maybe they build something for the kid and he just destroys it and they're offended by that or think, oh, you know, they feel like it was a waste of time now, but they don't realize kids don't have any attachment to the outcome. It's just spontaneous expression of whatever's moving through them and interacting is what's really important. So uh, the, one of the points I'm making is they, they, Angie could tell you more, but they suggested that adults engage the kids in playing, but they don't disrupt the play process because adults often don't know how to play. And they're at such a different level of their mental emotional development that they often don't really understand how to play with a child at that level. So an example would be, if we're playing, you know, both of us have little boys that are not, I mean, we're like within what, how old's Bear? Three and a half. Three and a half. So he's he's uh, maybe about two thirds of a year old. Mana will be three this month. So when I'm playing with Mana, maybe he's riding on my back, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and I'm pretending to be a dragon or a horse and, or we're playing hide and go seek or or digging in the garden together and you know, those types of things, then it's good. But if he is playing with Legos or uh, his trucks or his toys in his bedroom or in the living room, that's where I find it's better for me to not get in the way of his play process, but just be connected to him Mm -hmm. and acknowledge, oh, I like that. Oh, great. Oh, Oh, you, if it falls apart, oh, you can do it again. Let's just do it again. Mm -hmm. But I don't try to direct the play. And I think from my understanding of what Angie learned recently, which made a lot of sense to me because I teach adults how to play because they just don't know how to play. And adults that forget how to play get sick. That's just a fact. And they get, they take the word world way too seriously. And they make the very dangerous mistake of believing their thoughts as though they were true. And so you end up, you know, living in your shadow too much. And um, so I really, I enjoy the Steiner approach because I studied school systems all over the world because as a therapist, I found that the grand majority of the problems that lead to health and performance issues or diseases or performance plateaus and athletes always track back to something that had to do with childhood development and parental relationships and childhood traumas. And one of the most common things I see is, for example, art is a very big part of a Steiner education. And I'm an art therapist and use art therapy to help people heal and grow. And I can't tell you how many workshops I've conducted all over the world where art is a part of the process. And I've had 35, 40, 50 year old people that literally will start crying. I've had people sit and stare at an empty paper for three hours, afraid to put anything on it. And nine times out of 10, I find out that when they were a kid in some kind of class in school, somebody reprimanded them or criticized them or belittled them in front of other people because their art didn't look good enough. Mm. And so it's, it's, uh, 
It's very, very important to give kids the medium of expression, but it's also very important for parents to realize that the process is really the beauty. It it doesn't matter what it looks like. And when I see people that don't know how to play, they don't know how to express their creative energy and therefore the soul. And if we don't know how to connect to our heart and our feelings, then all that's left is our mind. And as Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of Nonviolent Communication said, the mind is a very dangerous place to be. I love that you just brought up that book because my wife and I have been listening to that on Audible together. Mm. And I, it's only five hours long on Audible. It's, it's for sure one of the most impactful books I've ever read. Uh, so much, so much wisdom through Marshall. And I think he passed away recently, but, you know, like as Paul Selig says, what is true now is always true. Yeah, it will well, always yeah. be true, right? Yeah. And so truth these is, these truth. universal truths, yeah, are locked in and, and woven into that. He has quotes from Rumi. I mean, he has there's it's he could tell the guy was fucking dialed in, yeah, on a different level. Um, talk a bit about the stages of child development because it seems to me, and I guess there's this core principle that I take away in. Waldorf and Steiner schools is this idea that they'll teach our children to want to learn. They'll teach them a love for learning rather than memorize this shit and store it away in your fucking brain. It's it's a love for learning and and they're allowed to excel and go down their own paths. If they're great at math, they can take college level math and just do the bare minimum in art. If they're great artists, they can excel and do college level art into the bare minimum in science. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's it's, a lot in there. Yeah, you know, um, one of the people that I would recommend for everybody to understand not only Steiner, but children and learning is Joseph Chilton Pierce. Um, you can, he's got some books out there. There's some videos of lectures he gave at Steiner schools and different locations. But he's got a great book called The Biology of Transcendence, which is really quite good. And it shows the stages that a child goes through, how the brain grows and develops. <clears throat> and there's and there's a f- fair bit of that information out there. But the, the thing is, is the child comes in and for the first seven years, they're, they're completely wide open. They don't have an ego structure yet. And the ego is, is actually a, a filtration system, right? So if, if you say to a fundamentalist Christian, have you ever thought of Buddhism? Well, you'll get some kind of a, you know, probably a negative reaction, n- not open or interest at all. They'll just defend the idea. Um, so that, but the point being is that there's the ego, defending and filtering based on its sense of identity, which is based on its programming, not based at all on who that person really is. So when children come in, first, they don't have the ability for abstract thinking. That that doesn't come on typically till around five years of age. So to, to exemplify that, one of the ways reach, researchers demonstrate that is they say, if you take a ball that's painted half one color and half another color, and you hold it up to a child. So let's say the ball's half black and half white, and you hold the white side up and you say to the child, what color is this ball? They'll say white. And if you say, are you sure? They'll say yes. And you can ask them over and over, are you sure? 
Yes. Then when you turn the ball around, they're just shocked. It's like, oh my God. And it's like you can hide a toy under a blanket and they actually think it's disappeared because they don't have the ability to realize that the toy is under the blanket, hmm. right? So the, the first point that I'm making is children's minds function as a wide open experience of everything and the child initially cannot distinguish itself from anything else. So the child pees on the couch, for example, because it thinks that it is the couch. The floor is it. Everything is it. There is no I-thou distinction. That doesn't start coming online until about two when the child starts to use the word I or me. So that's when you know that the ego formation is beginning to start. But the key thing is that Joseph Chilton Pierce shows very beautifully for about the first four years of the child's life, the right brain hemisphere is the dominant brain hemisphere that's working. And the right brain hemisphere is the hemisphere of wholeness. It's the hemisphere of feeling. It's the hemisphere of creativity, of novelty, unbound play. It's, um, it's I would link it to implicate um, memory as opposed to explicate, which is the storyline. Um mm. You know, the implicate memory system is our feelings. It's when people have PTSD, it's, it's, this is all trapped in their implicate memory systems, their emotions, but they cannot logically tell you key events that happen because the trauma is blocking that off. So the explicate is, is linked to the left brain's ability to put things into a narrative. So the child is recording everything everything in its environment, through all its senses, through subtle energy. And this begins right from the beginning of gestation, and that's well documented now. So one of the things that Steiner was very, very clear about is you should not teach children to read until between seven and 10 years of age. Hmm. Because the instant you start memorizing symbols and reading things, it turns the left brain hemisphere on and if you prematurely start doing that with children, what happens is it shuts down their ability to connect to the wholeness of the experience. So, for example, a child might even memorize a book about trees, but have no real experience of what a tree is. So think of all the kids that are spending all their time on iPads and reading books and parents are trying to rush them into reading because they want them to be a scholastic superstar and all these kinds of things. And think of all the things kids learn in school, in classes, but they don't really have much experience of connecting to those things in the natural environment. So Steiner's mode of teaching is very in line with the way natives taught their children. Mm. You know, natives research, if you look at the book, Metabolic Man, 10,000 Years from Eden by Charles Heiser Worthen, a naturalist, he studied tribal societies and he showed that on average they could meet their uh, hunting and gathering needs in about three and a half to four hours a day to support the tribe. But in the first half of the day, when they were out doing the hunting, the elders of the tribe did the education and almost all of it was storytelling, singing, dancing, acting, and things that are 
creative that don't require a lot of left brain. They were really, it was like sitting around a campfire and grandpa telling you a story. And, and, and of course they often use puppets and made it engaging and got the kids excited. And so Steiner's model is very, very experiential. So they're not doing very much reading for quite a while, but what they are doing is, is they will act out stories. A lot of them are myths, you know, things that tell you about the realities of life. My, maybe King Arthur. Um, it could be a, a variety of these things. But what they do is they make their own costumes. So they start right off the bat learning things like how to sew things together they do storyboards, they draw it out, they use colors. Um, the, the kids are, are given freedom to move about. It's not like a typical controlled environment. So there's a lot of marriage of color, of sound, of movement, of breathing, of interacting together. So what happens is they've got a visceral sense of how to play and how to express their creative impulse without inhibitions, without even being told, no, that's wrong, or mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that. So it's really like everything's great. It just let it come out. And then when they have that right brain online, then they start getting into the elements of the left brain with the reading and the typical memorizations as the child's brain is growing in its natural developmental cycle. And Steiner knew all this stuff long before brain science because he was highly clairvoyant. You know, Steiner was, it's hard to put in words, but, you know, uh, Renaissance man doesn't even do the job. Polymath is an understatement. I mean, when you look at, at what Steiner left the world. I mean, he was the founder and creator of biodynamic farming, which is, you and I have talked about soil and stuff before. It's the most comprehensive uh, type of farming in the world. And it's been studied and produces the most nutritious food in the world. Um, Steiner developed the Waldorf school system. He developed anthroposophic medicine. He identified a legitimate cure for cancer based on mistletoe, which is still being used to this very day by anthroposophic medicine doctors. He, Let's dive into that real quick. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've really hit the fucking ball out of the park with, with Waldorf and a lot on Steiner. But talk a bit about that form of medicine because there's been a number of people that I've been in contact with. Dr. Dan Engel, who's a friend of ours, who was here last year with us. Um, Dr. Thomas Cowan, who just wrote an incredible book, Vaccines, yep. Autoimmunity, and the Nature of Childhood Illness. Mm -hmm. um, really started his medical career. As an anthroposophist. Yes. Yeah. Dive into that for people. Because that's a well, term that was unfamiliar to me until I started learning about Steiner. Yeah. Well, anthroposophic... Um, it is human-centered. Um, it's a it's a form of medicine or an approach to the human being that is based on not just the body but the soul, and it's based on not just the body and the soul, but the formative forces that are active in the earth, which include the entire cosmos. Uh, for example, one of the books I've studied quite extensively on by Steiner is Universe, Earth, and Man, where he shows you all the 
wild things that you never would think of. For example, just one example, he shows you that the average human being breathes 25,900 breaths a day. Well, that's exactly how many years it takes for us to make one lap around the Milky Way galaxy. He shows you the average human life of 78 years, 72 to 78 years, is equivalent to one day in the lifespan of our sun. So the human life is one day in the life of the sun. We have our day in the sun in life. He shows, for example, that if you track the planetary orbits of the planets in our solar system and you map these things out geometrically, it produces a mathematical ratio that allows you to then look at the ratio of where the plant stems come out on the plant. And using that mathematical formula, Steiner showed you could tell which plants were influenced in their formative forces by which planets in our solar system. So anthroposophic medicine knows, for example, that if somebody needs more Saturn energy or more Venus energy, then which plants carry the formative forces of those planets? I mean, this is just touching the surface of Rudolf Steiner. He has his entire own system of astrology uh, called astrosophy, which is wildly complex and profound. Um, you know, and I've studied enough um, astrology and astronomy to understand the basics and, and realize that the depth that Steiner went in that regard was as deep as he went with everything else. Now, we're talking about one human being right now. He also had a, a degree in science. He also had a very, very deep and profound knowledge of philosophy. So, you know, when you look at um, anthroposophic medicine, it's really a form of medicine that looks at what a human being is, not from a, just a physiological perspective like typical Western medicine, but what are we as souls? What is consciousness and what is consciousness for and what happens if we don't move consciousness through us? For example, in Steiner's teaching, he talks about the fact that every sentient being in the universe has one commonality that they bring things into themselves from the perceptible outside and those things become unique within us because we then put something of ourselves and move it back out into the world. Well, that's the nature of any system. I don't care if it's an air conditioning system uh, almost all systems have something, energy and information of some type coming in and something going out. Mm. And so Steiner shows, for example, that if a person, like look at our school systems, they fill our heads with tons of stuff, facts and figures, most of which is highly outdated. We have to memorize it to pass tests and we stress the hell out of ourselves to pass these tests but we hold all this information in us and we don't really know what to do with it. In fact, research shows that 50% of people that graduate from universities are not even working at all with the degrees they gained within five years of leaving a university 
but they still have a sixty dollars to $100,000 school debt, and they're not even using the education. So one of the things that Steiner showed causes diseases and illnesses in people is if they bring things in that they cannot move out. Oh, okay. So think about what happens if you're eating more food than you can digest. Well, you get a fungal and a parasite infection. You get an illness because you got more coming in than you can move out. It's like energetic constipation. It is. It's energetic. It's it's intellectual. It's emotional. And then if a person has this sort of, we're in a culture that's, that highly esteems intellectualism. But Jung said intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. So when kids are, are put in schools and shielded and given all these things to memorize, but they don't ever interact, it'll be like learning all about surgery, but never actually touching a body. For example, most of the doctors in school nowadays are learning anatomy on computers. They're not doing cadaver dissections anymore. Doctors are taught on average, about four hours of nutrition in our, in our culture and their entire medical experience, but they're not taught nutrition in a working relationship with a client. Point being is they're bringing all this information in, but they're not moving it out into practice. So anthroposophic medicine really looks at what is a human being? What is that human being's relationship to other human beings, starting with the family structure, looking at the environment, then moving from the earth to things like the influences of the moon and each of the planets in our solar system. He was a master alchemist as well, very mastery. He studied Paracelsus extensively. Um, so anthroposophic medicine is also unique in that anthroposophic medicine doctors go through training that requires them to apply the principles to themselves, just like to be a union analyst you have to do four years of analysis with a highly trained analyst who will take you right into your shadow and guide you through to the core of yourself so that you become really, truly healthy and whole psychologically before you guide anybody else. But, you know, you listen to Gabor Mate and doctors like that, they'll tell you, and I've got many medical doctors in my own educational system, it's just information, 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 and you don't connect to people's feelings. In other words, it's as far as you could get from anthroposophic medicine in its orientation because it's all about doing things to other people without any awareness that a doctor is part of a relationship. So anthroposophic medicine is a lot about the relationship and the doctor is part of the healing relationship just like a psychologist is part of a healing relationship or a skilled therapist is part of a relationship. So the doctor's on the journey with you. It's not just doing to, it's doing with. And so, you know, in a nutshell, anthroposophic medicine is really something far deeper and far more holistic than most people in our culture can even fathom because they don't really understand what holism is because they've never developed their right brains properly. So everything's just what somebody else is telling them to do. And we dissect everything and compartmentalize and this system has nothing to do with that system within the body. The heart and the lungs are separate. All these things are different. One yeah. has nothing to do with the They're other. They're all in different zip codes. Yeah. How right? you think and feel has nothing to do with your gut or what you put in your body. You know, that's that's <laughs> that's part of the misconception. There's something I'd like to share with you, you know, because I've studied so many of these people and you guys on the camera, you're only seeing a, a small amount of my library. There's 
a whole other room full of books and my wife's office is full of books and I have books at home and and things like that. You know, there's thousands of books here and I've probably spent a good four or $500,000 on all these books and studied thousands of them. Um, but, you know, Carl Jung is one of the most important influences on my approach to the Czech system. And I've studied them in parallel as long as well as many others. But what I'm leading to here is a deep insight that has to do with anthroposophical medicine. And what I want to share is an insight that Jung came up with on his own. And I want you to listen to the parallel. Rudolf Steiner said that when a person's healing from any kind of chronic illness or disease, the anthroposophic physician must help the patient identify what the secret story they continue to tell themselves is. And once they identify what the secret story is, they will be able to see where they're creating or participating in the creation of their own illness. Carl Jung said, whenever someone with chronic physical, emotional, or mental problems came to him, his first question was often, what is the unmet task you're avoiding? Hmm. Well, the unmet task cannot be identified until we listen to the secret story we keep telling ourselves about who doesn't love me or who expects this or I'm not good enough or, you know, the, the whole thing, everyone's got one. And now to show you another parallel, one of my other great teachers and mentors is Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber says, to the degree that the story you tell yourself does not match the story you tell others, first you will become fatigued, then you will get sick, and then you will get a disease. Damn. Okay. Now, it was recently released in the news that Bill Gates did not vaccinate his own children. And when his doctor asked him about vaccinating them, he said they're healthy, they don't need vaccinations. And he is one of the biggest proponents of making it mandatory to vaccinate children all over the world because he's making billions of dollars off of it and it's part of his plan to reduce population. What's my point? He is not telling the story to the world that he's telling himself. Whenever we are incongruent in our story, it sets up a field of dissonance in us. And dis-ease and dissonance and chaos are all essentially the same thing. So now back to your comment on truth. No matter who you study, if they're a legitimately developed human being who has two halves of their brain working and their heads made it to their heart, you will find that the same truths are repeated and shared in different words that say the same thing. Right here in my bookshelf, I've got a book called Parallel Sayings of Krishna, Jesus, Buddha, and Lao Tzu. And it goes right down the line and takes a verse from Lao Tzu, and then it shows how Jesus said the same thing, how Krishna said the same thing, how Buddha said the same thing. Damn. And you can go right <laughs> through the book. And what do you find? They're all saying the same thing. Now, why is that important? Because we've got P. 
people, religious people, especially in the Western world where it's dominantly Christian, that absolutely vehemently deny the validity, existence, or the enlightenment of anybody other than the man they call Jesus Christ, who may or may not have ever even lived. There's no objective evidence of that. I've got a book right over here showing 279 direct parallels between the story of Jesus and the story of Krishna, and Krishna is a much older myth than Jesus. So how do you get 279 direct parallels? What's my point? When people tell themselves a story on the inside, but it doesn't match what's happening in the world, it creates dissonance. But when you really start getting to the truth, you find out God or spirit or the universe is talking to you all the time. But until you grow um, an awareness that you have two ears and one mouth, which means you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk, you will never know what the truth is. You will just convince yourself you have the truth and you will end up being somebody praying to Jesus to come heal the disease you've created by believing in a story you keep telling yourself. And so what does this relate to anthroposophic medicine? It relates to the same thing as native tribal medicine. A shaman will always ask you four key questions if you come to them with a health problem. When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop believing in stories? When did you stop enjoying being alone with yourself? Mm -hmm. And the fifth question is, when did you lose your sense of magic and mystery and awe for life? Well, most of those questions are inherent in tribal medicine. They're inherent in anthroposophic medicine. They're inherent in Carl Jung's teachings. They're inherent in, in most of the great systems out there. And what do we have today? Kids that have stopped singing, stopped dancing. They only enjoy stories that are produced with millions and millions of dollars, bells and whistles, but they're not the kind of stories that they learn in Steiner school where the stories are acted out so you actually are part of the story. You, know, you live the experience. You live the experience so your whole body remembers it. It's an, and it's an act of creative expression. Steiner developed a system called an, of, of eurythmy, which is a system of movement for healing the body. That's right. They talked about that a little bit yes. on our tour. And he used to help people with speech disorders and all sorts of spiritual problems. And lo and behold, what do we have? We have yoga, which is a system of postures. And what do we have as a human body, which is an, a cosmic antenna system, which Steiner clearly outlined. And so did the yogis. So what am I saying? Eurythmy is based on the same principles of yoga, except instead of holding postures, it's a series of movements, and each one relates to vowels, consonants, which are vibrations, which basically inherently affect the chakra system and all the inner, inner systems of the body, the subtle systems and our psychic systems. And so what, what am I saying? If you look around and you go to people that demonstrate authentic wisdom in their own life, not just a PhD and fancy degrees and sick people telling other people how to get healthy, you find the truth is all around you. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like last time when we got into the to the soil. I love it. <laughs> oh, softball pitches, softball underhands, and they're going out of the park. 
Um, well, I'm pretty sure you read my fucking mind just now because the, the next people I have on the list to cover, and I don't know that we'll get to all of them today, but Carl Jung is next. Well, And Ken Wilber came after that and Lao Tzu came after that. So let's see if we can get through some Carl Jung here. Well, if you turn around, right on the top shelf is the collected works of Carl Jung. Uh, that's uh, 20-something volumes. Um, then the next shelf is... Uh, no, second shelf from the top. That's more Jung books, many written by very, very skilled Jungian analysts. Now, Carl Jung, like Steiner, is exquisitely deep, studied many languages, many cultures, uses $10 words regularly, many of which are not in dictionaries. Steiner's books are mostly direct transcriptions from Austrian into English without the syntax. So you, when you're reading a lot of books by Steiner, they're heavy going because he has many words that were created by him to express things that weren't in other languages. Mm. So you may be reading for 30 pages to finally understand a word 30 pages ago. So it's hard on the brain. You have to really stick with it or go to someone like me that studied enough Steiner or someone who's a Steiner teacher, or a biodynamic farmer, or someone that's committed to Steiner. But the point I'm making is many of the Jungian analysts uh, write books that teach Jung stuff in ways that are much easier to digest and understand than Jung himself. Um, so I've spent a huge amount of time studying Jung and many of the great Jungian analysts. And... Jung's system of, he is the founder of what we call depth psychology today. He was really deep into what the soul is. In fact, if you want to get a taste of how deep Jung is, read his book or listen to the audio book, Man in Search of His Soul, which was published in 1939. And wait till you hear the comments he gives in that book about what would be happening with electronic devices and things like that. And then remember that Steiner who died, I don't remember when he died, but he died uh, maybe 1920 or something like, I'm just guessing, but he wasn't around for cell phones and faxes and computers and all that. Steiner said all the way back in the early 1900s, men will continue to invent technologies outside of himself until he realizes that everything he's inventing is a copy of something that's inside of him. The question is, will he destroy the world before he figures it out? Fuck. Okay, then <laughs> listen to Man in Search of a Soul, of his soul by Carl Jung in 1939. And if that man was standing before you today, it would be like there was a zero time gap. I mean, these guys were deep, deep human beings that really, really worked on themselves and were very authentic. Jung broke the code of alchemy. He was the first one to really show what the alchemists were saying and that there was two schools of thought in alchemy. The chemical alchemy, which most people think of as trying to turn lead into gold, that became what we now call chemistry. But hidden inside of that, Jung decoded after 10 years of research and his assistant, Marie-Louise von Franz, who is a master of many of these, you know, kind of foreign languages, worked for him, with him to help him decode a lot of these ancient texts. And he found that the alchemists actually saw 
that as their mental, emotional, or psychic states changed, chemical reactions in their beakers and in their scientific experiments were mirroring that back to them Mm -hmm. and came to the realization that their psyche has a direct influence on matter and any material process, whether it be mixing chemical elements together, what have you, and lo and behold, what it is quantum physics taught us. You cannot remove the observer from the outcome of the experiment. It's impossible. It's called the observer effect. They've shown in quantum physics that if the observer has a bias in any direction, that the outcome of the experiment will mirror the bias back to you. In other words, it will skew the experiment. So you cannot do legitimate scientific research unless you're doing it with the intention of finding out the truth. If you have a bias that you're trying to prove you've already destroyed the experiment, it's no longer real science. So we have most of our science is paid for by corporations and therefore based on what I'm sharing that the alchemists figured out way before quantum physics was even around. So the point I'm making is Carl Jung decoded and showed that what the alchemists were doing was practicing a non-sectarian form of spiritual development that they had to code secretly because many of them got burnt in hot vats of oil, burnt at the stake, flayed alive by the Christian church for practicing blasphemy. So they coded it in art and in words and symbols, and Steiner himself was an alchemist. So what you see is there's a parallel between Steiner and Jung, and that's alchemy. And that's the study of how life actually is created. And I love alchemy, and I developed my own system called Czech Life Process Alchemy, which I shared with you and took you through a session of when you were here, I shared it with Ben Greenfield, and it touched him quite deeply. We just talking, to, I was just talking with Ben two days ago out in L.A. about you. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I wanted to send you some love. All right. Well, I love you, Ben. For, Thank you. For our time together. Yeah. And so, in fact, this is a segue, but uh, I was doing um, a shamanic journey many years ago to find out who my spirit guides were at that time. And the first guide to appear to me was Carl Jung. And I was really, though I'd been studying for many years, I I just, for some reason, was shocked that he was actually working as a spirit guide for me. And each guide brings you a gift. And Carl Jung handed me a map. And I opened it, and I immediately recognized that it is part of the system I'd been working on for years. And he said, your next guide will give you the other half of the map. Well, the next guide that showed up was Rudolf Steiner, and he gave me another map. And then Jung and Steiner said, your job is to put the two maps together. And the inner map was the psyche, and the outer map was the relationship between the physical universe and our physical body. So Jung gave me the inner workings, and Steiner gave me the outer workings of the cosmic forces, And I married the two together, which became Czech Life Process Alchemy. And that's really a lot of that. The beginnings of that is taught in Czech Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2. In fact, all the Czech education programs are made of the collection of everything that I've been able to study and practice. And my methodology is to study, go apply it in my life, see how it works for me, try it in the clinic with my clients and the athletes and the sick people I'm working with. 
and refine it till it works really well. First, it's got to work well for me. Then mm-hmm. it goes to patients, clients, and others. And then from there, it goes to students. And I always tell my students, don't believe a word I say. Test it on yourself first. If it doesn't work, come back. I'll check your technique. Every single time in the history of my life that a student said it didn't work, they were doing it wrong. And when I recalibrated their skills with them, it worked exactly as I said it would. Why? Because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And my soul teaches me how to apply that in a modern age so that we don't have the challenge of interpreting a Jung or a Steiner. It, it, it can be taught in a classroom by my instructors. And so, you know, Jung's another guy that he's just very, very deep and very exciting and, and authentic and really dove deeply into himself. Uh, he also had two wives, which back in his day was quite a, you know, the Victorian age. It created a lot of stir. He got a lot of kickback for that. Um, but he was a very honest man. And and I love that about him. And you know, I have two wives and and it, you know, ruffles some feathers, but that's, you know, as it says right on that poster, go ahead and read what's on the wall right there for me. Great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. By Albert Einstein. There you go. And Einstein <laughs> loved the women too. Your he fucking mediocre minds. <laughs> you know, and 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 you know, I don't want to be uh, condescending because mediocre minds are just underdeveloped minds. They're the children of our culture. Mm. And when you reach the level of being an authentic adult and you learn to take responsibility for the choices you're making and you reach a spiritual place where you recognize that everybody in the world is a reflection of you at some stage of your own development or beings that are even higher than you, then you just learn to have empathy for them. You know, yes, it can be tiring and it's like flies buzzing your head when you're trying to read a book and it gets to be a f- bit aggravating at times, but it's it's taught me empathy to just see people with these harsh opinions that are more interested in what you're doing wrong than asking you, well, do you do you have love in your life? Is it working? Is it helping you be happier? Those are the questions we should be asking. And if we ask those questions of kids in school, most of them would say, it's boring as fucking hell. I'm tired of it. And when I was in school, the first thing I noticed is most of the teachers were burned out and just going through the motions. It was like some robot was in front of the class. And I found that I always did well with passionate teachers. I remember all the teachers that were passionate kept my attention and the other ones bored the hell out of me. We fucking noticed that at the school we had Bear in. It was a nice private school, but Bear was too young to get into Waldorf. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we'd show up and they just looked fucking tired and run down. They look spent. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if I go out of town on a hunting trip or something like that and I come home and my wife's been at home, single mom in it the whole time because we don't have family in Austin, I get that sense from her, you know, and it's yeah. like, shit, let me take some work off your back. Let me, let's, I'll take a day off work and have you take a day for yourself and just try to give some of that relief. Right. And, yeah. um, but I should never see that in a teacher. <laughs> Well, here's <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like, I never want my teacher to have that. I don't even want my wife to have that. That's why it it helps to have more than one person in the household raising the child. 
It does. And, and I want to stand up a little for the teachers. One of my girlfriends years ago was a teacher and, and um, very intelligent, very beautiful woman who at the time, the only reason I'm not with her right now is because she wanted to have children. And I just was clear at the time I could not have children because the Institute and the mission of the Institute was the most important thing to me. And I needed to stay totally focused on that. And 20 years later, you'd be popping them out left and right. You know, so and, why, and, what's the and rush? And I swear to God, you know, if you want to make God <laughs> laugh, tell him you got a plan. So, um, but the point I'm making is having had many teachers in my own education system, my, my grandfather was a school teacher in the Los Angeles school district for 35 years he specialized in teaching handicapped children, arts and crafts. Um, my grandmother was the superintendent of the Redondo Beach School District for about 35 years. So she was the chief principal of all the principals for the entire Redondo Beach School District. And what I can tell you is that this loops back to the beginning of this interview. Most people are not parenting their children so when kids are going to school, the teachers are having to deal with completely unparented children who are extremely hard to manage, who have spent most of their lives being babysat by televisions and street fighters and very destructive games that program their minds. And Joseph Chilton Pierce shows actually very clearly, and I've got very comprehensive books showing that, that the more stress there is in the developmental environment of the household, in the family, the more stress there is between the parents, the less forebrain or frontal cortex they have, and the more hindbrain and, and therefore defense mechanisms that they have. And they actually show pictures, and Joseph Chilton Pierce shows this, that many of the kids being born today are wired to fight because they're coming into the womb and into an environment that produces extremely high levels of cortisol, which alters the wiring of the brain because the child is born into a metaphorical battlefield. So when those kids end up in class and you've got 30 of them to try to manage and they don't get along with each other, they have a hard time connecting to and even loving and appreciating themselves. They've been judged heavily. They've been put into Christian Sunday schools where they're taught God will burn them in hell for touching their genitals and and all sorts of they've you know I've seen numerous documentaries showing these hell camps that they send Christian kids to to scare the fucking hell out of them. Um, you know when I was a child, uh, we lived in Idaho for three years and we're surrounded by many Catholic families. I've never seen I, I, you know my father was a very violent man and I used to think I got treated poorly, but many of my friends in the Catholic families got beaten up even more than me and my brothers and sisters did. Mm. And all of this is the product of this religious ideology, which is as far from God as you can possibly get. Now, uh, you know, another podcast, we can talk about why that all happens from a metaphysical perspective. But what I'm showing you is that teachers are really dealing with classrooms full of kids that are wired to fight and wired to survive in a combative judgmental environment whose parents are so busy trapped in a consumerism mythology that's been imparted to us by media 
and social programming so that we keep the rich rich. And so we really don't have healthy children and we really have school teachers that are now tasked with being mothers and fathers instead of focusing on the education of a child. And if you think your wife gets tired having one child, imagine having 30 Mm. or 40 of them all day long who are poorly raised and drugged on sugar and garbage food. And it starts to help you see why a lot of teachers are burned out. Yeah, I love it. Well, a little compassion. I love it, man. Well, That's yeah, a great you know. way, great way to wrap up this podcast. We've we've hit an hour. I'd love to take it with you two, three hours, but we've got to lift some stones and we gotta jump on living in 4D. We yeah, gotta jump man. on your podcast, yes. brother. Yeah. And we'll have uh we'll have plenty of space to jump into Ken Wilbur and Lao Tzu and many of the oh, great man, look at many uh, of the wizards I, I that can, you have here. I can go, I got a lot of them. And and you know. I'll close by saying if 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 you feel the world's fucked up, you feel alone, you look at the crap on the internet and all the so-called experts that don't agree on a damn thing out there, just know that there is a lot of wisdom available. And when you're truly ready to learn, as the old saying goes, when the student is ready, the master appears. And you know, I've had many people enter the Czech system and I've put a huge amount of time and energy into training extremely masterful instructors who have to do a lot of work with me and really demonstrate authenticity in what they're teaching. They're using by no means talking heads and some of my podcasts are with some of my instructors. So you can find them like Matthew Walden, Nicole Devaney right off the top of the bat. Um, but I mean, all the instructors are great. But the point I'm getting to is when a person's really ready and they just ask that special voice inside of them to guide them, God leaves the answers everywhere. And if you don't believe in God, then it's the universe. And if you don't believe in that, well, then there's some wise fucking matter around here. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, brother. I love you, Paul. Thank you for having me out here. Super pumped for this entire day and the tomorrow and all the good stuff that we're going to get through. Yeah. Lots of work to be done. Thank you. I, I love you, too. I I have the deepest respect for you as a human being and, and Aubrey, too. And so uh, I'm grateful to the opportunity to share with your subscribers and you guys and everybody at On It. Fuck yeah, brother. We'll do it again. Aho, great spirit. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast with my man, Paul Check. Be sure to go to his podcast, Living in 4D, and you can listen to me as a guest on his show. We do a two-hour podcast talking about the arch of the hero's journey and how it applies to my life. So the 12 steps of the hero's journey uh, based off of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Fucking incredible. I've, I'm familiar with the stories, but I'm, I had no real depth and knowledge of what that was. It was really cool for me to jump in and try to insert the pieces of my life that I saw fit. And uh, let us know what you think about the podcast we just did. Let you know. Let us know what you think about the podcast I do with Paul on Living in 4D with Paul Check. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, 10% off all supplements and food products at onit.com slash podcast.